We are in part three of our series that we started a couple weeks ago uh, uh, called The Gospel According to Moses. I've been enjoying this very much as we look at the first five books of the Bible and we see um, elements of the gospel uh, as it's, as it's uh, uh, prophesied or in pictures or, or as one of the, uh, the uh, illustration I used the first week is that it's like flashcards where you see the one picture, but on the other side, there's more and there's, there's more to it. And so we're going to be continuing that tonight. Tonight, we're talking about Abraham. We're going to be talking about a, the friend of God. And I'm excited about this. So Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to be. If you want to turn there, we're going to begin reading in verse 31. Genesis 11, 31. <coughs> Terah took Abraham, his son, and, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the, of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to underline that phrase right there in your Bible, to go into the land of Canaan. That's, that's significant. It says, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, I want to stop there for a second because uh, if, if, if most of us are very unfamiliar with Middle Eastern geography. And so I want us to take a picture. I get a, I'm going to show you a map in a moment. And, and I want you to see and we'll be able to, I'm going to read it again. And we'll be able to trace the, the direction that, uh, that they went uh, so, that, so that it'll make a little more sense for us. So let, let me read it again, and we'll just do a little geographical lesson to, to lead into this. It says, Terah took Abraham, Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, or the Chaldeans, and those, you, if you can put the map up, uh, you can see there on the map toward the, it's kind of small letters, so you probably can't read it. Uh, but uh, those on the live stream will be able to see it. But on the, toward the bottom right hand, I'm, toward the bottom right hand of the map, uh, you'll see a little dot there. That's Ur. And that's where they were. This is, it's actually uh, in uh, modern day Iraq. It'd be southeast of the city of Babylon. And uh, it's due east of the land of Canaan, which we now call Israel, which you can see there along the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and then way up toward the, toward the top, in the, in the middle, you'll see there's a little dot there. That's Haran. And so you can see that what he did was that, that, uh, that he, he, he to, instead of going due west to go to Israel, which the reason you wouldn't do that is because there's no water there. It's all desert there. So he followed the river all the way up to, to that area, and he was going to be coming in the uh, uh, Tara and his family all, would all be coming in from the from the north, looping southward into Canaan. It says, but when they came to Haran, which is in modern day Turkey, it's right very close to the border of southern Turkey. So we're talking about Iraq and we're talking about southern Turkey here in this passage. It says, when they got there, they settled there. They stopped there on their journey. Okay, so now let's that's it for the geography. Let's move on to verse thirty-two. And uh, it, it says, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, meaning he's talking about the country where they're in now, the, where Haran is, and go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you 
a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, now take note of that. They came to the land of Canaan. So Terah headed out to go to Canaan, but he stopped in Haran. A lot of people don't realize that while Abraham or Abram at this time was from Ur, that wasn't where he was called out of because his father, Terah, had moved the family with the intention of going to, going to Canaan in the first place. But Terah headed out to go to Canaan, but he stopped in Haran. Abram had, went out to go to Canaan and he came to Canaan. Verse six, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. And at that, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. It's talking about the people of Canaan, the Canaanites. Then the, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, which, or Bethel, which, which that just means the house of God. Anytime you see the, the, the Jewish word for house is Beth. So like Bethlehem means the house of bread. Uh, and here, El is God, as in El Shaddai, uh, for example. Uh, in, uh, in fact, you'll often see, uh, the, the, the often children were named uh, using the name of the God that their family served. So you have El Elijah, because they put El in the beginning of that. Or you have Jeremiah, Yahweh. So you have these kind of things happening, but... So this is the, uh, the house of God, Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the, on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and, and called upon the name of the Lord. All right. I don't know why I was having such a hard time reading tonight. <laughs> but in at least three places in the Bible, this man, Abram, is called the friend of God. I mean, what an amazing, amazing title that is, the friend of God. Now, you don't need to look these up. I don't have them on the, on the scripture, on the slides or anything, but you might want to write them down. But in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Isaiah 41, verse 8, and James 3, 23. I'll give those to you again if you are write them down. 2 Chronicles 27, 20, verse 7, Isaiah 41, 8, and James 2, 23. At, at least in those three places, Abram is referred to as the friend of God. His name was changed in the course of his lifetime from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, which is always ironic to me. And we're not going to talk about this tonight. But, but when he changed his name to father of a multitude, he was still childless. Isn't that amazing? That, I mean, how would you like to be Abraham when you go, back, go to town? You know, you go shopping, you're going to go to a market, and you go to town, and somebody says, Hey, how, how are you doing, Abram? Oh, I'm not Abram anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah, what, what's your name? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not exalted father now. So, but, but, well, what is your name? Oh, my, my name is now father of a multitude. <laughs> and they're like, this man is crazy. He's lost his mind. But it's, it, was an, it was amazing to me 
that God chose that name for him. And then you know, the stories of Genesis, including the, the fairly extensive biography of Abram, were written by Moses. And now what we're doing in this series, what we're doing tonight, we're looking for, what we're looking for is the account of the New Testament message in, through, and behind the details of the Old Testament documentation. In other words, where, were, those, were there those ways in which Moses saw the gospel behind the events that he was recording under the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit? And we've been calling this the gospel according to Moses. Moses was fascinated with the character and the life of Abraham, or as he is called here in these early pages, Abram. Perhaps this was simply due to the fact that great men are always interested in other great men, in the same way that General George Patton constantly was reading about the lives of other great generals and, and reading about other great battles. He was particularly intrigued with the life and personality of Alexander the Great. However, perhaps there is something beyond that, beyond that there's, there's something that there is more. You know, was the Holy Spirit fixing Moses' gaze on the life and the personality and the biographical details of Abraham's life in order to give Moses revelation and wisdom to understand that there was a story behind the story and that there were words behind the pictures that he was seeing. So here we see Abram's father, Terah, in Ur of the, of the Chaldees, or the uh, southeast of Babylon, moving to the northwest to Haran uh, on his way to Canaan. However, we already mentioned he stopped short. Now, we have no clear account that God spoke to Terah as he spoke to Abram, but, but something, some way or another, something moved Terah to get out of Iran. Something moved Terah to get out of the area of the Chaldeans and to move to Canaan. Somehow or another, the Spirit of God moved upon him, guiding him, getting him away from there, getting him to where he wanted him to be. And in the movement of that upon Terah, Terah began to obey. However, while we don't have any record of God speaking directly to Terah, Abraham obeyed the direct command of God. And in obeying that command, get out of this place and go to the land of Canaan, there are two great things that happened. The first was that the ongoing purpose of God in both Abram's life and in the Old Testament was accomplished and furthered. More than that, however, and most important for all those of us in this room in our day, because Abram obeyed God, the messianic purpose and plan of God was furthered. The, the destiny of of God for Messiah Emmanuel to be born in a specific village, in a specific area of Israel, on a specific night, at a specific point in human history, that plan of God was not to be frustrated. And if Terah would not obey God, God would speak to Abram. And maybe that was what God was trying to do, moving Terah through there to get the, that family to Canaan, but, but if Terah would not obey God, God would speak to Abram. If the first generation disobeys God, God will move to the second generation. If one country misses God, God will move to another. If one location refuses to obey God, God will find another. You know, you know someone may ask, why do you think that the spiritual center of gravity seems to have shifted westward constantly over the centuries? I mean, if you think about it, the spiritual center of gravity started in Jerusalem. 
That's where the church started. So it was there. And then it moved uh, uh, into the Mediterranean Crescent. And then it moved on into Europe. And then from Europe, it moved on into England. From England, it moved on into the United States. And, and, and now, today, do you realize that there are millions and millions and millions of Christians from all over the world who, who make out, uh, annual pilgrimage, yes, to Jerusalem, but not only to Jerusalem, but they're not making a pilgrimage to the United States. They're not coming to the great churches of America to learn how to live as Christians and to learn how to pray. Do you know where Christians from Africa and India and the Middle East and Southeast Asia and Latin America are, are traveling? They're, they're going to Seoul, South Korea. As, as the dynamic spiritual emphasis continues to shift to the West. We've been able to track its movement westward so far, all the way from Jerusalem to Seoul, South Korea. And the reason I mention them is because, you know, just 60, 70 years ago, who would have ever believed that the largest Christian church in the world would be in Seoul? I mean, you, you could hardly find a Christian in Korea at the time of the Korean War. You could hardly find one. Now, now the largest Christian church in the world is in Seoul, South Korea. The largest Methodist church in the world is in Seoul, South Korea. The largest Presbyterian church in the world is in Seoul, South Korea. The largest Assembly of God church in the world is in Seoul, South Korea. That, that particular church uh, is called Yoido uh, Full Gospel Church. It's a, it's a small little church about the size of a Sunday school class. It has over 800,000 members. Yeah, I mean, you, you understand that this building here is not even a broom closet for them, you know? Why is that happening, though? I, I believe it's because that God is so determined for his will to be obeyed and for his purpose and his plan to be completed that if you won't obey him, he'll speak to your son. And if your son won't obey him, he'll speak to your neighbor. And if your neighbor won't obey him, he'll speak to someone else. And if some, that someone else won't obey him, then God will lift his glory and move somewhere else. And if, if America won't be friends with God, then God will lift the cloud and move on. That's just the, the reality of it. He'll find somebody that will do the work and the will of God. I believe that with my whole heart. Uh, his plan will not be altered. But there's someone in the world that will carry out the plan. So if I won't do it, I'm just, my disobedience is not going to thwart God's plan. He has power to overcome my disobedience. Instead, he'll move and find somebody else and say, all right, I'm going to put what I had planned for Dave. I'm going, to, I'm going to put my hand on this other person's life and they'll feel, fulfill my plan. So, so we see the cloud move, as it were, from, through, through the life of Terah. And it settled in on Terah's son, Abram. And this Abram was destined by God to become the friend of God. The friend of God. Again, what a title, the friend of God. You know, I mean, have you ever heard anybody say that you're known by the friends that you have? You're known by the company you keep? Well, you know, that's true. What an unbelievable title to have, to be known as the friend of God. You know, sometimes kids have the, their parents say to them things like this. Maybe you've said it to your kid a time or two uh, where you, they say, I, I just I just don't like that friend. I, I don't want you to hang out with them anymore. Uh, and they and why is that? Well, it's because you're afraid that you'll they'll be influenced to the negative. You know, they're the parent. You're afraid that they'll be taught something wrong or the, that the, the, you're afraid that their connection will be wrong and. And then the child will say, uh, and so you'll say to the child, well, don't be with that friend. Don't, I don't want you to hang out with that person anymore. And, and there, there are other times, though, when, 
uh, kids will say to their parents, I'm friends with such and such person. And then the parent will say, great, good. Go wherever you want to with that kid. You know, have him over to, to the house, spend the night, anything. It's because you like the influence of that kid upon your life. What kids don't understand is that that other kid's mother may be praying to get your, that kid out of their life. I don't want you hanging out with that kid anymore. You don't know. But however, just imagine being known as the friend of God. Imagine for all of human history, every time your name is brought up, people say, oh, he was God's friend. He's a friend of God. Now we know Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And Jesus said to all of us, not just to his disciples, he said, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. However, there must be something more in this that Abraham, this one man, is called the friend of God. There must be something more. Maybe it's more in the word friend, a deep, intimate relationship, so bonded that they heard each other's softest whisper, that they shared each other's deepest secrets. You can see this idea of friendship with God all throughout the Pentateuch. It must have been very precious to Moses because you see it come up over and over again. You see it in Adam. Adam and God, what did they do? They walked together and talked together in the cool of the evening. Adam was a friend of God. You see it in the life of Enoch. You know, Enoch walked with God in such a, a way that, that he didn't even die. He just wasn't here anymore because God took him to, to, to home to be with him. I've always, I heard somebody explain it that, that Enoch would take these long walks with God. And one day God just said, well, you know what? We're closer to my house than yours. Just come home with me. And he was just gone. Enoch was a friend of God. You see it in Moses' life as well. The friend of God. Moses was so much the friend of God that when he died, God covered Moses with his own hand. In other words, that means that God buried Moses. You see it in the life of Noah. Noah was a friend of God, able to hear the plan and the purpose of, of God in a mighty way. However, here's the thing. None of them is explicitly called the friend of God like Abram. Now, now ask yourself this question. How would you like to be friends with God? Now, now, before you answer that, I know that seems like an easy thing to answer. Well, of course, everybody wants to be God's friend. But, but, you know, before you answer that, it might be good to look at the life of somebody who was a friend of God. Because, you know, God is a serious being. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we're talking about the God who fashioned the Rocky Mountains with his fingertips and, and he overswept the, 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 the sky with clouds. And, and we're talking about the God who made humanity and breathed the, the breath of life into our nostrils. I mean, if, if you put your hand in the hand of God and walk humbly before God as a friend to friend, that's going to be different than any other relationship. What can we learn from Abram about what it means to be a friend of God? Well, I think there are several things. The first is in chapter 12, verse 1. We just read it. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram. We're just going to stop right there. The Lord said to Abram. The, the first key to any kind of relationship is intimacy, listening. With God, we're talking about spiritual sensitivity. You know, in marriage, one of the most difficult things to explain to new wives about their husbands is that, and this is, this is a hard one for, for, for many wives, it, some of them take some 30 or 40 years to learn this, and it is that your husband cannot read your mind. And, and it seems very difficult for them 
for, for some women because, and the reason is because they can read their husband's minds. They, they know exactly what he's thinking. They know exactly what he's feeling all the time. And they expect their man to be able to do this. Ladies, I have a shocking revelation for you. He is spiritually dumb. He is, he is emotionally crippled. And men seem to be born without any spiritual nerve endings. They, they don't know what's going on around them until it hits them in the face. That's just the reality of it. And it just takes a while for, the, for ladies to come to grips with that. It, you know, for example, you know, a couple comes to the end of the day and the husband at the end of the day is, comes home and you're all, they're in the house together and the husband suddenly senses something and says, are, are you mad at me? Have I done something? And she looks at him and says, I've been mad at you for three days. Are you just now figuring this out? That's kind of the way it goes. He's clueless. Any man here know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, the, the truth is the closer and more intimately we, we bond in relationship, the more sensitive we become to each other. You know, uh, now, I, I, I know now when my wife is troubled or upset about something and and I can figure out in far less time than three days. But when we first got married, it might have taken me three months <laughs> sometimes before I even figured out she was upset about something. And it's not because of her, it's because of me. The, the closer your relationship becomes, the more sensitive you are to exactly what's going on in the other person's heart and mind. So imagine being such a close friend with God that you could, you could feel when his heartbeat increases. Imagine being such a close friend with God that you knew when God was grieved over something, that you knew when God was pleased with something, that you knew when God was excited over something, that you felt and experienced and witnessed with the Spirit of God all the time. You knew exactly what God was thinking and feeling so that your intimacy became so intertwined that you weren't sure which were your feelings and which were God's feelings. I mean, is that exciting to anybody but me? I mean, imagine that. Imagine being that intimate with God. You know, uh, I don't know about your experience. My experience is God can get my attention occasionally, but often I find so often that God has to hit me over the head. You know, a sermon or a verse in the Bible that he uses just to sort of punch me in the face. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, I got that. I got that. He's like, oh, well, I'm glad you got that. But why do I have to shout at you all the time? Why can't you just listen to my most intimate whisper? But Abram heard God. Abram was the friend of God. And when God moved on the heart of Terah, Terah may have heard him as a distant voice coming from another room. But Abraham, Abram heard God's voice as the breath of an intimate friend on, on his cheek, a whisper in his ear. You know, whereas so often, you know, it's as if, I, as if I'm getting telegrams from a distant country. But I want to be the friend of God. If you look at chapter 12, verse 7, there's something else that we see. It says, then the Lord appeared to Abram. And, you know, we read little lines like that in passages of Scripture and and we just tend to just skate right over it. The, then the Lord appeared to Abram. And then we just keep reading. I mean, sometimes you just got to stop and think about what you just read. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. Am I the only one that's just blown away by that statement? The Lord appeared. God appeared to Abram. 
you know, that, that thing, that idea, that must have fascinated even Moses. Moses wrote the biography of Abram, and then later on, Moses, you think about that, later on, he, Moses is in, in, on the mountain, and he says, God, I, I want to see you. I want to see you. I, I wonder where he got that idea. Maybe it's because the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that Abram, the friend of God, without soliciting, without even asking, without begging, without pleading, the Lord appeared to Abram. You know, somebody, I heard a story, a guy was telling, uh, he, uh, another man told him, he, uh, this guy came to him and he said, you know, I'm a friend of President Bush. This was back when President Bush was in office a few years ago. And his friend said, wow, that's, that's really amazing. That's, that's something. I've never been friends with a president. He said, do you go to his house? He said, oh, no, I don't go there. And his friend said, uh, well, do you visit him in the White House? Oh, no, no, I've never, never been to the White House. Well, do you go to Kennebunkport, Maine and visit him there? No, no, I've, I've never been there. Well, they talked for about five minutes and his friend, uh, he asked his friend, this man one question after another and eventually he found out that this guy had met George Bush at a receiving line in an oil convention in Houston, Texas 30 years earlier. He thought, this guy's just a phony, lying name dropper, but that really wasn't it. It was that that was the extent of this guy's understanding of friendship and that was the problem there. But I mean, imagine if, imagine if you came home and Donald Trump was in your living room and his feet are up on your coffee table and he said, well... Things are in pretty bad shape here. You got any suggestions? You know? And then when you call your friend up and say, guess who is at my house this afternoon? I mean, that means you're the friend of Donald Trump. But, but that's nothing. Imagine riding along in the desert on your camel and all of a sudden there's somebody standing there out in the desert. And that person stops you, waves you down. And he says, Abe, step down. Let's just share some olives and some pita bread. We're going to have a conversation. By the way, I'm God. <laughs> oh, you know, that's a, that's a whole different scenario. And I know it sounds like a bizarre thought, but, but you know something? I, I believe that God wants to reveal himself more in more different ways to more people than people have ever allowed God to do. I believe, the, I believe the problem of our inability to hear from and to receive greater revelation, the problem is not with God. P people say all the time, God, speak to me. God, I do it myself. Come on, God, what's the problem? Speak to me. And God is speaking all the time, constantly. I mean, imagine calling Domino's and saying, hey, I want you to send a pizza to my house. And then after you order the pizza, you, you go out and chop down a tree so that it falls across the, the roadway out in front of your house. And then you, then you put tacks and nails and screws all out in the driveway. And then you plant claymore landmines on the, across the front walk. And then you go into your house and wait and wait and wait and wait. And eventually you finally, you call Domino's up and say, where is the delivery man? And they say, well, we've sent five. None of them have come back. <laughs> you know, I believe that's, that's sort of how we, most of us, most people approach uh, their friendship with God. They say, God, why don't you speak to me? Come on, speak to me. And God says, I'm, I'm trying to speak to you, but you have your television set on all the time. God, why don't you speak to me? Well, I'd, I'd love to speak to you. I'd, I'd love to, but it's really hard for me to communicate with you about anything else than that immoral relationship you're living in. 
God, why don't you speak to me? I'm trying to reveal myself to you. I, I, I don't really want to speak to you. I want to look, uh, look you in the face, but it's very difficult to get my face in front of yours because your eyes are always fixed on your bank account. However, Abram, somehow or another, allowed God to move him into the, that place of spiritual sense of sensitivity, of deep intimacy, where he heard God's gentlest whisper, and he saw the revelation of God. L look at this. Uh, turn to chapter 14. You, you tell me that Moses didn't see the story behind the story? You, you tell me that Moses recorded this account of this event under the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit and, and didn't have any idea that it meant more than just the words on the paper? I, I believe that when Moses wrote what we're about to read about the life of Abraham, that that he sat back in his chair and he looked at it and he said, there's more in this than I can possibly begin to understand. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Salam, or Shalom, Salem, these are all derivatives of the same word meaning peace. So it says, and Melchizedek, the king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. My friends, listen, you, you want the gospel according to Moses? Here it is. God will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That's a picture of what's happening there. David heard it, Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David said, I hear oil dripping on my shoulders. It runs across my head. It drips down my beard. God anoints me with oil. He washes my feet. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. And David, hearing those things in the spirit, seeing them, writing them in poetry and in song, and all the time saying, oh God, I know it. I love it. I experience it, but there's more. I, 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 know, I know it, God. There's something just back there. Something back there. Moses saw it. Moses looked at this experience from the life of Abraham, uh, as uh, at that time Abram, as the Holy Spirit revealed him, and, and you, you, he, he knew that there was something back there. Because the, as the king of peace walks out with bread and wine. Bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? The, the Passover, and he, and he squats down in the desert with a Middle Eastern chieftain named Abram, and he says, let me serve you communion. You know, Abram must have received that. He, he tithed to it. Abram tithed, by the way, before the law. People say, well, I don't tithe. That's, that's, that's Old Testament law. Well, tithing was around before the law. So it's not, it, if, it doesn't matter Anyway, that's not part of the lesson. I'm, I'm going to resist my preacher urge to talk about tithing. But, but, but Abram must have received that and gotten back on his camel or his horse or whatever he was and ridden away saying, that wasn't just some guy. I just looked into the face of a king. 
before the, before the Christian church had ever even dreamed of, before anybody even imagined that communion would be celebrated at the altar of, of a church anywhere in the world, Mel Melchizedek came out and served a prefigurement communion to Abram in a lonely desert. You know, the way I think of it is you can hear these melodies that sort of float through the Bible and then suddenly it comes up and clear and sharp at different times and you can hear it like when two men were walking on the road to Emmaus and they were talking about the events of the previous days, the events of the crucifixion. And suddenly a third man was walking there with them. And the third man said, who are you talking about? And they said, what's, what's the matter with you? Have, have you been living under a rock? Don't you know the things that have go, been going on? Haven't you heard of Jesus of Nazareth, a great prophet who worked these miracles? He was handed over to the Romans and they crucified him and now he's dead and buried. And now there's some women who are talking about his resurrection. Don't you know about these things? And, and, and listen to what it says. I don't know if I have this in the, in the uh, slides or not, but you can listen to what, what he said in, in Luke 24. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when they came to the house where they were going, they, they implored him to go in with them and break bread. And as the Prince of Peace broke bread and prayed, their eyes were opened and they said, Prince of Peace. And they knew him. The friend of God. To, to be the friend of God means to have the spiritual experience of God revealing deep, profound truths. Which perhaps few others in that generation are going to receive or be able to even comprehend. What a friendship. What a friendship. Listen to me, especially anybody that's watching this, anybody hears this that's young, there, there are things that God wants to say to you. There are things God wants to teach you. You know, I, I pour over these pages. I say, oh God, give me truth. The people are starving. Oh God, I, I don't want them to go home with baby food. Give me meat. Give me depth. Give me content. God, let me preach the word. However, this is what I know, the reality of my life. I know that because of my weakness, because of whatever is in me, that, that there are things, great things, deep things, powerful things that are hidden from me for whatever reason in these scriptures. And, and there's some 12-year-old girl that's going to saturate her mind and her spirit in the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the time she's my age, she's going to be seeing things and explaining things to me. I'll be sitting in my nursing home watching television saying, wow, wow, listen to that girl preach. Where did she get that? I mean, I preached on the life of Abraham and I never saw that. There are things that God wants to reveal to you. Deep things of God. The first and most powerful aspect of friendship with God is spiritual sensitivity and intimacy that's so profound that we, that we have never even begun to scratch the surface. However, there is a second uh, a great element of intimacy with God. And that is this. Intimacy with God cannot, will not, ever be cultivated in or, or through any person, any man, any woman, boy or, or girl, who will not trust and obey God in faith. 
Why, why, I mean, think about it. Why isn't Terah called the friend of God? I mean, honestly, there's probably not one Christian in 10,000 who can tell you who the father of Abraham was without, after, without going through a Bible study like this. Uh, why isn't the father of Abraham call, uh, called Terah the friend of God? Why is Abraham called the friend of God? I mean, Terah began well. He felt some sort of motivation for whatever reason to move to Canaan. However, why did he stop? Why did he stop short? Because he failed to cultivate that intimacy with God that would continue to motivate him forward toward the final fulfillment of God's purpose in his life. You know, I mean, I've heard people say things like this. Maybe you've said something like this. Every time I get started with God, something happens. It just seems like I just can't break through. Listen to me. Hear me on this. Don't stop short. Just because it gets hard, just because something happens, don't stop short. There, there was a marathon runner from Haiti in the 1984 Olympics. Some of you may have heard this story, but, but he, this marathon runner from Haiti finished dead last. In fact, at that time, I'm sure it probably is still the record, but it was the slowest time ever recorded in an Olympic marathon race. I mean, they were ready to turn the lights out in this Olympic stadium. And this guy comes traipsing across the finish line. But he finished. Nevertheless, he finished. Well, there was some time later, after Jean-Claude Duvalier, who some of you may remember him, he was known as Baby Doc. His father had been the president of Haiti. And then he took over. And he was, he was not a good guy. Uh, he was a very... Uh, brutal. Um, and, but anyway, after he had been removed uh, from being the president of Haiti, there were some people that asked this marathon runner uh, about this race. And they asked him, why did you finish? I mean, you had, you had no chance of winning. It was the slowest time ever. Why did you finish? And he said, because Duvalier told me that if I didn't finish the marathon, he was going to kill me. Well, you know, there seems to be a certain level of motivation in that, it seems to me. Uh, but, uh, but, but God is not dealing with us that way. But what he is saying is, if you don't finish, if you don't crash through that wall of pain, then you won't find the intimacy with me that I want for you, where I can show you these things, where I can grow you to greater places. It, it, you know, here's what happens. People have a, have a good beginnings. A lot of, we have a lot of people who had great starts. But you know what? It's not all about how you start. It's about how you finish. But, but they start off really well. People have these good beginnings with God. I'm going to learn to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. Every day I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to learn that intimacy with God. No matter what, for the rest of my life, I'm going to do this. And it lasts for like two or three days. And then they begin, they begin it, and then they stop short like Tara. They leave Ur, and they wind up in Haran, when all the time Israel, Canaan, was the intended destination. I say to you, press on with God. Obey God. Trust God. People make false starts all the time. They start, but they just won't go on with God. But the wonderful truth about Abram, was that Abram, or later Abraham, withheld nothing from God. When God spoke, Abram obeyed whatever God commanded. He heard God. He believed God. He obeyed God. That's the character of, of, the, of the friendship that Abram had with God. That is deep, 
profound, full of revelation. He heard the whisper of God. He changed from being Abram to being Abraham. And now, it doesn't mean that he was faultless. I mean, Abram, Abram was not faultless. If you think that be, being becoming the friend of God means that you're never going to make a mistake, <clears throat> then I'm here to tell you you've never read the life of Abram. Because Abram made at least three monumental mistakes, and, and, and he made the same one twice. You know, he moved to Egypt, and another time he moved to Gerar, and Abram's wife, Sarah, well, even when she was 100 years old, she was so beautiful that Abram was afraid. He was constantly paranoid about, about uh, everybody want, around him, all the guys wanting to kill him and take his wife. So twice, Abram lied, and he told the same lie. He told Sarah, tell him you're my sister. Which, by the way, I'm just thinking in uh, marriage counseling terms, that's not one you ever get to live down. You know, every argument for the rest of your marriage is going to be like, you're, you'll be like, why do you do this? And, she, and your wife is going to be like, yeah, but you called me you, your sister. You know, it's just, you just don't, don't get to come back from that. Anyway, now, by the way, it technically was not a lie. It just wasn't, it wasn't the truer truth because she was his half-sister. He had married his half-sister and, and he said that, that she was his sister, but the truth was she was his wife. That was the truer truth, so to speak. So twice, two different kings took her into, into their harem to, in order to marry her, and God stopped it both times and wouldn't allow them to have sex with her, but, but twice he told the same lie. He was weak and he was full of fear. We see that. Uh, being, being a friend of God didn't necessarily in, in, uh, instantly, automatically, totally sanctify him from every sin and weakness. Then again, we know that Abram was weak in the face of of his wife's insistence. God promised them this child, Isaac. God had promised them. And Sarai had put a deadline on God and God didn't meet that deadline. So Sarai said, if God won't do it, we'll do it ourselves. And, he, and she came up with this goofy idea of having Hagar bear the child and she was going to claim Hagar's son as her own. It's just a monstrous, horrible mistake. But I will say this, Sarai doesn't get all the blame for that because Abram was the head of the household. The buck stopped with Abraham. So, so at least three times, Abraham made monumental spiritual mistakes, terrible miscalculations. Three times he had these horrible sins. Nevertheless, by the time he reached his old, his old age, God had fulfilled the promise. Isaac had been born. His name had been changed from exalted father to father of a multitude. He'd walked with God. He'd been intimate with God. God had, had, had blessed him. He had seen the face of God. I mean, imagine coming to your old age and every promise that God has ever made to you has been fulfilled. Everything that you wanted is all there. Everything is there. You're walking with God in deep intimacy you're, you're just ready to pass on out of this life and go into heaven and live in paradise with God forever. Well, that's, that's old Abraham. Everything's fine. Everything's settled. God's, God's through with him, this friend of God, ready to die, cash in his chips and, and get on into heaven. And that little boy that you love, that God promised, he's, he's yours now. And he's not a baby anymore. He's more like 12, maybe 11 He's able to do a little work around the tent. He can ride horses and walk and talk with his old dad who's twice as old as, as, as his grandfather ought to be. And everything's there. He's ready to go to heaven. And one night the friend of God stretches out on his mat to, uh, 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 in his tent 
And God says, Abraham, Genesis 22, Abraham. The friend of God says, yes, Lord, here's your friend. What, what, what do you want to say? And God says, Abraham, in the morning, get up and take your son, Isaac, your only son, whom you love. God, God keeps adding all these things, making it harder and harder. And go to the mountain that I will show you and bind his hands and feet. Make a stone altar, cut his throat and pour his blood out and then burn his body like a sacrifice. God told Abraham to offer his only son, the one has, who, who, who had been the promised one, as a sacrifice. Now, maybe that doesn't challenge your faith, you know, but it does, it, it does me. I mean, I think I know what I would, have, would, would do. If I, if I were in Abraham's sandals, I, I think I would have jumped uh, up in that tent when I heard that voice. And I would have said, out, out in the name of Jesus, you foul spirit. You know, imagine that. God, in that moment, you're trying to do spiritual warfare, he says. And I'm trying to teach you one of the greatest truths that's ever been re revealed to humanity. But God only spoke once to Abraham, the friend of God. And he obeyed. Because listen to what it says in verse 1 of chapter 22. I'm gonna, actually, well, this is what we just described. And then we'll get to verse 3. That's the part. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as, an, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Verse 3. So Abraham, the friend of God, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. That's just amazing. I mean, he didn't even wait till like high noon. He and, his, and, and Isaac and his servants take off into the desert to make sacrifice to God and the little boy I can just picture the little boy saying I'm I'm glad you brought me daddy this is going to be a great trip and Abraham says don't talk son just don't say anything right now and they rode silently in the desert until Abraham there was something about one particular mountain that caught his eye and God said there there go up there and kill the boy he said to his servants you stay here with the beast Isaac Take daddy's hand. And the friend of God took his little boy's hand and with a, with a bundle of sticks under one arm and his knife in his belt, they, they started up into the foothills of the mountains. And, and that little boy said, Daddy, where, where are we going to get a lamb? Daddy, I, I see the knife. I, I, I've seen you, you, you've cut the, uh, I've seen you use that knife to cut the throats of thousands of lambs. I, I, I see the bundle of sticks. There's the mountain before us. Daddy, where are we going to get the lamb? We're a little higher, climbing now, becoming so sharp that father and son both are gasping for breath a little bit. And finally, the little boy says, Daddy, we're, we're nearly to the top. Daddy, tell me, where are we going to get the lamb? And can you imagine this, this moment where this child is asking your child, the one you love, your only son, the one that's the promised child. Daddy, where are we going to get the lamb? Tears streaming down Abraham's face and ache in his heart so deep until under the inspiration 
and the hand of God resting upon him, the friend of God, so accustomed to, to a God that would never fail him in such deep intimacy with God that in the most crucial spiritual crisis of his life under the anointing of the Holy Spirit looks at that, his little boy in the eye and he says, God will provide himself a lamb. Wow. Now, listen, we look back across 2,000 years of gospel teaching and and across thousands of years of Hebrew oral faith and culture. And, and we understand exactly what he meant. But this was, this was even before the law. This was before the, the day of atonement. This is before any of those things. The thing is, Abraham had never heard of Calvary. Abraham had never heard the name of Jesus. Abraham never understood what it meant that God would provide himself a sacrifice. Abraham never understood the, the lamb slayed from the foundation of the, of the world. Abraham never heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Abraham had never heard Jesus cry out from the cross saying, It is finished. Abraham had never heard Jesus say, Behold, I lay my life down and I take it up again. Abraham had, Abraham had never heard Jesus say, I am the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham had never read the book of Hebrews. Nevertheless, the friend of God knew that God had a plan that would transcend this moment, that God had power, that even if that boy should die, he would be raised from the dead. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Read Hebrews 11. The friend of God knew that he could trust God utterly. The friend of God knew that the worst thing he could do was withhold anything from God. No matter what God asked him to lift up as a sacrifice, he knew that God would bless him in it. He knew that somehow or another, God loved him more than he loved God at the deepest point of his love. What a man of faith. The friend of God. He said, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Now, I want to point something out here. I'm going to make a big deal of a big point of it, but, you know, a lot of modern translations, it, it says God will provide for himself. There is no for in there. In the original, he will provide himself a sacrifice. See the picture, the flash card? He took that little boy, he bound his hands, and Isaac said, Daddy, what are you doing? And he said, Son, don't say anything. You trust Daddy. Daddy is trusting God. And I can see that old man's hands trembling as he, as he stacked the rocks there and he took his little boy and laid him on that altar and he withdrew that knife, his hands shaking. I, mean, I heard somebody one time say that Abraham never intended to slay the child, that, that he knew God would stop him, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God looks on the inward parts. If his heart was disobedient, I believe God would just let him kill that boy. But he, he knew that Abraham was intent on, on perfect obedience perfect obedience the book of hebrews says that he was so filled with faith as i said earlier that he believed that if the child died god would raise him from the dead do you see there you see the flashcards all over this place 
It's unbelievable how we can see the gospel in the book of Genesis. It's, a, it is a, it's amazing that Moses, who never saw the cross, seemed to comprehend the gospel of the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus better than some Christians do. I mean, Jesus believed that, that, that even if he died, God would raise him from the dead. But imagine that torturous, horrible, agonizing moment as he raised that knife and, and, and just as all the muscular strength of his arm and his back is about to plunge that knife downward, that same great voice from heaven speaks and says, Abraham, yes, Lord. Abraham, stay your hand. I never intended you to kill the boy. I only wanted to know if you would trust me utterly. And Abraham drops the knife with a clatter, lifts his hands to praise God. And just as he's about to open his hands and, and worship the God he hears uh, that, he, that he loves, he hears a noise in the bramble bushes behind him. Bah! And he turns and looks behind him and caught by its horn, horns in the bramble bush is a ram. And he took that ram and offered him as a sacrifice to God. And the child was led away redeemed. You see this? You see this as a gospel? That we were the ones that should have been ha ha having the nails plunged into our hands on the cross. And as substitute, the Lamb of God was nailed there in our place. And we went away free, redeemed. God provided himself a sacrifice. As Abraham came down off that hillside, I, I believe that deep in his heart he was saying, God, this is, this is not about you and me alone, is it? This, this is not just about this hill, this ram, this boy, this knife. What is this? And I believe that deep, 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 somewhere in the depths of Abraham's soul, that he looked ahead through the eons of space and time, and maybe he saw another hill where another father would lead his son by the hand. Only this time, nobody would cry out, stop. Instead, they'll cry, crucify him, and nobody would stop. And the ram caught by its horns, would become the, the perfect sacrifice. The gospel according to Moses. You know, God will take care of his friends so thoroughly, so totally, so absolutely that he will even provide himself a sacrifice. Who, who am I? Who, who, who are you? Who are any of us to receive this? Who, who, are, who are you, Sam? Who, who are you, Chuck? Jesus said, I want him for my friend. And he died for you 2,000 years before you were ever even born. Who, who are you? Who are any of us? I mean, aren't these the same hands that hurried to do sin? Aren't your lives filled with the same sins that fill mine? I mean, is there anybody here that's perfect? Anybody without sin? Who are you that God would say, I want that person to be my friend. I, I want that girl. I want that man. I, I want that, that, that person for my friend. The thing is, Jesus didn't die for us at our best. He died for us at our worst. That's the miraculous thing about grace to me. 
that God sees us in our adultery and he died for us, that God sees us in our drunkenness and he died for us, that God sees us in our misery and our lying and our deceit and every other kind of wicked thing and he died for us. It, it, it was in that moment that Jesus went up to Cal Calvary. It was in that moment, the worst moment of our life, that he provided himself as a sacrifice. It was in that moment that he became Jehovah Jireh to us. I will provide a way. Because that's where this, that name comes from, is from the story of Abraham and Isaac. Because it was, he said that because God provided a lamb. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. It's not just about everyday things. It's about the reality that God has provided a lamb. He is Jehovah Jireh. And in that moment, Jesus hung on his cross on, with his arms outstretched on that cross. And he said, it is finished. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And God proved himself to be Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh one last time. Glory to God. Is it any wonder we call this the good news? It's not just preacher rhetoric. I'm talking to you about how a man can be completely lost and separated from God who has lived as an atheist, a person who has lied to God, a person who has stolen, a person who has cheated on his wife, a person who is a murderer, a person on death row in prison, in prison a, a guy in the deepest bowels of a prison camp in Siberia, a communist general in the Kremlin, anybody, anywhere, no matter what he's done, no matter where he's been, can become a friend of God and he can live with God eternally because God has provided a way. He is Jehovah Jireh. How can anybody hear that and turn away from it? If you ever just saw that ram caught by its horns in the bramble bush, if you could ever just see Abraham leading that boy up the hill, Daddy, where are we going to get that lamb? If you could ever just hear Jesus as he went up that mountainside, mountainside saying, Oh God, I'm doing this because I love you and because I love them. I believe that you would want to become the friend of God so badly that nothing could stand in your way. God has provided himself a sacrifice. Bow your head and let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We're amazed. We're amazed at your grace because we know we don't deserve it. In fact, that's the very definition of grace. But God, we, we read this story. We, we read about Abraham and Lord God, we want to be your friend. But it's not about us earning that place. It's, be, it's about the reality that you have provided a way for us to be a friend of God. Even more than that, you've provided a way for us to be children of God. You adopted us. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas, Lord, as we celebrate this, this coming weekend, Lord God, that we would remember that Christmas is not about babies and mangers and wise men and shepherds. All those things are wonderful. All those things are, are exciting. All those things are beautiful. But God, it's really about the reality that God has provided himself as a sacrifice. And I pray, God, that we would be filled with wonder, we would, we would, be, we would be filled with awe, and that, God, we would, we would be filled with the faith of Abraham that we would say, Lord, I will withhold nothing. That we would realize that no matter what you ask of us, that we can trust you. Help us to walk in that kind of faith. Help us to walk in that kind of intimacy.
Help us, God, to become friends of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.